they brought me in for all intents and purposes to, to bury it with some dignity, if you will. No kidding. Uh, the hospital itself was about three and a half, three point seven million dollars in a bankruptcy. Uh, was bouncing payroll checks, as, as you might imagine. Everything that could be uh, wrong with this hospital was. I got there my first day, and it was a Monday. I actually remember because it was April 15th. It was tax day, and I, uh, not enough stress on that day and not, uh, already. But I remember sitting in the office and uh, visiting with, well, she's now my board chair uh, to this day, and I said, well, I understand that there are a lot of a lot of issues. It was 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, right, my my future office, and I said, but is there any really just red-hot, flaming, burning problems right this away? If you had to tell me the top three things that I have to work on right this second, what, what would it be? And she, she sat back in the chair and kind of rubbed her chin a little bit, and she goes, well, you know, payday's on Friday, and uh, we have about 7000 in the bank. You, you might want to start with that one. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah. I excused her from the office immediately, and she, she was happy as could be, and, uh, and I got to work on that. <laughs> Welcome to Pure Spectrum, where we journey through medicine's overlooked and unexplored corners. Experience what it's like practicing medicine on the International Space Station, operating on an NFL Super Bowl quarterback, treating remote patients in Antarctica, or flying over the burning reactor at Chernobyl. Ride along with a former Navy SEAL physician embedded with elite Delta Force commandos. Meet renowned physicians, economists, researchers, and journalists deconstructing subjects as diverse as psychedelics, meditation, science crowdfunding, artificial intelligence, architecture, and more. Join orthopedic surgeon Dr. Keith Mankin, Colin Miller, and our growing tribe as we explore medicine en route. All right, welcome back. So we all know the bad news about rural hospitals in the U.S. 60 million of our fellow citizens rely on these small hospitals, often known by their designation as critical access facilities. According to a recent analysis conducted by the consulting firm Navigant, 21% of rural hospitals today are at a severe risk of closure. This includes 430 hospitals across 43 states, representing 21,000 staff beds, 150,000 employees, and $21 billion in revenue. When one of these hospitals shuts down, and 95 have so far since 2010, critical access to care isn't the only casualty. These hospitals are often the largest employers and drivers of economic growth in their communities. The ripple effects are felt wide and deep every time a hospital shuts its doors. Okay, that's the bad news. Now how about some good news? For that, we're making the trip today to a remote town in Idaho known as Arco. With a population of only 900 people, Arco is definitely small. You won't find many restaurants. You won't even find a Walmart, but you will find a hospital. A tiny 14-bed hospital called Lost Rivers. And by the way, what a cool name for a hospital, right? Anyway, its existence and survival in the face of overwhelming odds is the story of today's episode. When our guest, Brad Huerta, took over in 2013, he wasn't there to save Lost Rivers. He was there to shut it down. With over $3 million in debt, pending bankruptcy, and only $7,000 of cash in the bank, the situation was beyond grim. Today, the same hospital is cash positive, free of every dime of debt, running six years now with a yearly profit, and getting ready to open a new surgery center, as of September 2019. How is this possible and what happened after Brad arrived? Well, it's one heck of a ride and one hell of a story. So buckle in, get ready. And with that said, let's get started. Brad, welcome to the show. We are uh, super thrilled to have you today. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, we hear so much in the news, and we've been hearing this for some time, about the situation with rural health care, with small town hospitals. And it's 
it's nothing but bad news. I mean, you, you know, we hear hundreds of these hospitals have closed over the last five to 10 years. Um, communities are losing the access to the only, you know, option of care that they have for, in some cases for, you know, 100 miles or more. I mean, you know, you hear it over and over again. And last month, there was an NPR article. It featured you and another CEO of another similar hospital, I think, in Kansas. And for once, it was actually positive news. It was about a turnaround, about some success. And I talked to Keith about it. We're like, gosh, we've got to get this guy on. We, you know, fi- finally finding something that's working. So, Brad, let's just start with you're in Arco, Idaho. Give us an idea of what this town's like. What's life like there? You know, the hospital. Kind of paint a picture for us. Sure, sure. Arco, Idaho uh, is in Butte County, Idaho. So if you think of really central Idaho, a lot of people might be familiar with Sun Valley, Idaho. We're about 45, 50 miles directly east of that. And we sit between two mountain ranges. Um, our hospital district sits at what the base is, what at the base of the Lost River Mountain Range. Uh, they actually call it the rooftop of Idaho. So we have uh, Idaho's two of Idaho's highest peaks uh, just down the road from us. Uh, and the, the, the town and the district itself is edged by the desert to the south. Uh, and then it turns into what I think most people imagine Idaho looks like, rugged mountains, lakes, streams. Uh, it really is uh, spectacular. It's an outdoor uh, outdoor paradise if you love the fishing and the hunting and the, and the mountain biking and those kinds of things. It's uh, It really is a little bit of everything. Yeah, I was trying to get a feel for it looking on Google Earth here, and it looks like you're not that far from Yellowstone. I mean, it's, God, it's beautiful scenery there. It's just, just amazing. Yeah. One of, one of the really fun things is about maybe 20 miles from us is a national monument uh, called Craters of the Moon. And it's actually where the first Apollo astronauts cha- trained for the uh, lunar landing back no in the 60s. And uh, just that's just down the road from us. And, and like you said, what it really is, is it's a leftover lava field from uh, the Yellowstone hotspot that uh, created Yellowstone uh, National Park. Uh, but this is millions of years ago, of course. But we have everything from craters and, and lava flows to mountain streams, high alpine uh, environments, uh, onto a uh, high altitude desert, uh, covered, like I said, just a little bit of everything, but incredibly uh, sparsely populated. Uh, we, we actually are considered uh, what's called, a, it's called a frontier area by the U.S. Census Bureau. I, I was uh, joking with uh, the reporter from National Public Radio, and they put the one line in there that I thought, probably didn't make any sense. I said, I didn't know there was anything more rural than rural. And <laughs> apparently, fr- frontier is more rural than rural, is, is really what I was getting at. Uh, but with that, we are significantly outnumbered by, by elk and bears and, and everything else you might imagine. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, when I was preparing for this, I, I, I read you know, the name Arco, and I said, where do I know this from? Because I've never traveled there at all. And it hit me. One of our recent guests, uh, his name's Robert Gale. He was an oncologist who was one of the few guys, really the only guy who was invited to the Soviet Union to treat victims of Chernobyl. So he was there just, you know, weeks after the incident. And I read his book in preparing for that interview. And he actually talked about Arco because there's something else you guys are known for. Um, it's actually a first. Uh, tell us about that. We're very famous. Very famous for one thing uh, specifically. Uh, Arco, Idaho, the plain that's just south of the hospital, uh, by about 20 miles, were a host to what's known as the Idaho National Laboratory. Uh, it was uh, INL, we call it INL, uh, that first did the first successful test of creating electricity out of nuclear fusion. And so we like to tell everybody we 
we are we are the very first place uh, in, in the known universe to to have used electrical power generated by nuclear fusion. Uh, they did that back in back in the late 40s, I believe, as part of the uh, plowshares from swords program. And I figured we always joke that you know Arco is so far remote and so far out in the middle of nowhere that if anything went bad, it really wasn't going to affect anything. No one, no one was out there. <laughs> uh, so we were we were the very first place ever to be lit by atomic power uh, for for power generation. I mean the town was lit for uh, about maybe about 20, 30 minutes, and then they powered it down and then we did all did all the analysis on it. But uh, that's kind of kind of a unique claim to fame, and uh, it's still still a major part of our community. Uh, most uh, most people either work at the site or work at the hospital. And one more thing, since we're geeking out on history, um, there's also probably a nuclear meltdown there, they think, because um, Robert talked about this in his book, and um, still a lot of debate about that, but uh, it's probably the only incident of its kind <laughs> in American history. But we could go on and on about that, but uh, a lot of interesting spots. Yeah, go ahead, we, Keith, I got we you. All blow, we all blow at night. <laughs> so... Um, or tell us the um, the history of the hospital. Then, how is it that a medical center found itself in this very small uh, community? You know, the, the actual uh, reason for the hospital being there, you know, was, it was built. It was constructed in the early fifties, and it was originally a uh, a Catholic hospital operated by the nuns. Um, and about nineteen seventy, it converted to a county hospital, and then. Shortly thereafter, uh, I want to say about 10 years after that, it became a hospital district. Uh, so we have, like your library district, or the district. Uh, so our, our board is elected, and uh, we actually levy a tax on the outline defined community to support the hospital somewhat. But it's a pretty standard uh, governance organization for rural hospitals to do this. I guess like a school district or library district. But uh, a lot of these hospitals in the 50s were put uh, in a lot of these small towns, uh, just because of the remoteness and the inaccessibility to to healthcare, uh, so you saw a lot of a lot of these little hospitals popping up in uh, non-urban areas, uh, designed specifically, you know, to meet the needs of emergent care, really mostly emergency care. Uh, all the really big stuff we would, you know, of course, still to this day ship out to to our medical, you know, our medical centers, uh, tertiary medical centers, but. Uh, they realized even back then, you know, 60, 70 years ago, that healthcare was a major necessity, particularly in these farming and ranching communities, where uh, wellness certainly is, is is part of what we do, but uh, we, we do quite a bit of emergency medicine. Yeah, we want to talk about that as well. Um, how many beds are in this hospital? We are uh, what they call a critical access hospital, and we are licensed for 14 beds uh, here in the state of Idaho uh, to be considered a, a call. Access has to be less than 25. Uh, so we're, we're uh, 14, we're one of the smallest. Idaho has uh, 44 hospitals in the state, 27 of us are critical access hospitals. Hmm. Kind of an interesting factor, too, as well, uh, with regard to Idaho, it's also the largest roadless area in the entire United States, except for Alaska. So we Spend a lot of time. Uh, you know, everyone, it, it's it's a bit of a cliche, but pretty much everyone really does drive a truck. They have a truck and helicopters and, <laughs> to get to and from places. Uh, the only state that has fewer roads than us would be would be Alaska. We're the we're the biggest in the lower 48 states. How about that? 
So uh, also for perspective, where is the nearest um, hospital beyond Lost Rivers? Where would you have to go if Lost Rivers closed, for instance, or if it wasn't there? Sure. Uh, our, our nearest hospital to us would be the Eastern Idaho Regional Medical Center. We, we call it Ermac. And that's about 87 miles directly east of us. Uh, the, the, the thing of it is, 87 miles doesn't, you know, I, I'm thinking probably, uh, what, using a perspective from someone who lives in the West, 87 miles doesn't seem that far to us. We travel, you know, an hour and a half to get a Slurpee, but uh, 87 miles is quite a, quite a ways away when you're, when you're injured. Um, and certainly in the wintertime, one of the things that we don't take into consideration all the time, I think, is the fact that the only thing connecting ARCO to the rest of the world is a two-lane state highway. Uh, and half the time, uh, there's more than half a dozen times where that, where that gets closed in the winter. Uh, because of, and we have some significant and severe uh, winter weather. And in fact, it just snowed in our hills just yesterday. And uh, you know, it's September 12th. <laughs> so we, we expect we'll see the top of those mountains again sometime in uh, May. But uh, we've already got snow on the hills. And you know, come, come December, January, February, March, it, it is significant. We have a lot of high winds across the desert. And you can get some, some significant whiteouts which will oftentimes shut that road down. Um, and that's the only way in and out. And so we, we have to be prepared to take care of patients. Um, but you also have to be prepared just to be isolated somewhat, at least for a while. Yeah, I'm looking at Google Earth right now. I mean, it's it's certainly not as a crow flies to get anywhere because it's, uh, <laughs> it's a long distance to any of these places. Um, yeah. Well, and like I said, that, that desert, the wind will just howl across that. Uh, there's nothing to stop. Uh, we, we oftentimes get whiteouts with the snow. Uh, it, it just comes down sideways. Even an inch of snow blowing, you know, 50 miles an hour just covers the road. You can't see it. So, yeah, once, once it gets like that, you kind of just dig in and wait for it to blow over. Huh. All right, Brad. Well, let's talk a little bit about this hospital. So as I understand it, you took over as CEO in 2013. And the hospital's in a tough spot at that point. Give us an idea of what was going on there and what you were walking into. I, you know, and, and it's not uh, uncommon. A lot of these rural hospitals, uh, we, we weren't unique in that regard. Uh, we were struggling mightily. I was actually brought in in 2013. I worked at a, a larger facility uh, in a place called Pocatello, Idaho. Uh, uh, they brought me in for all intents and purposes to, to bury it with some dignity, if you will. No kidding. Uh, the hospital itself was about three and a half, three point seven million dollars in a bankruptcy. Uh, had about seven thousand dollars cash on hand. Uh, was bouncing payroll checks, as, as you might imagine. Uh, everything was everything that could be uh, wrong in this hospital was. <laughs> and, and, and let me be very quick to say, it really had nothing to do with line staff. Uh, we had great. We, we did then, and we do now. Uh, had great providers, great nurses, great people working uh, as hard as they could, paddling as hard as they could. But it was really just a failure of uh, leadership at the top, frankly. And, you know, that like a lot of small hospitals, uh, they kind of didn't have a lot of resources to figure out how to write the ship. And they brought me in to, to kind of custodial, I guess, steward it along into a peaceful and least painful death, I guess, so be a way. Um, but it, but the, my board, um, who had just been replaced, uh, my board again was a, or all elected, um, 
and because because the hospital district, the previous board had been dismissed uh, by recall a month before I got hired. And, and to make this clear, board, this is a county-owned hospital, right? So it's under the commission. Uh, no, no, it's not. No, yeah, that's because it's a, it's its own independent taxing district. Uh, so the voters get to vote for who's on the board, just like they vote for the commissioners. The hospital itself is its own legal identity. But they had a recall and got rid of the board because um, of the ongoing issues with operations. And then the county commissioners stepped in because they needed, they needed people to run the hospital. They just appointed uh, the board they have now. And they were going to stand election if, if the hospital survived long enough. The, the main job of the interim board was to basically go hire, a, hire an executive. And so that... I, very happy to say, uh, with the exception of one or two members who have since moved away, uh, the original board that I got uh, is still there. So we're very, very fortunate. And a lot of our success uh, was really begun at the board level. We had some very good people, very well-meaning people who uh, were really ready and willing to make the hard choices that needed to take place in order to kind of correct, correct the course of the hospital. I uh, felt very supported. And, because of that, I was able to do, I think, some, some very difficult things initially to help us kind of get going in the right direction. Well, I mean, $7,000 cash on hand, that's it. <laughs> I, I, true, it's, true story. Yeah, the, the head of the board was the acting interim during, a, during the interim, interim CEO while they were trying to hire me. I got there my first day, and it was a Monday. I actually remember because it was April 15th. It was tax day. Huh. And... I, uh, not enough stress on that day not, uh, already, but I remember sitting in the office and uh, visiting with, well, she's now my board chair uh, to this day, and I said, well, I understand that there are a lot of a lot of issues. Um, it was 8 o'clock in the morning, you know, right in my, my future office, and I said, but is there any really just red-hot, flaming, burning problems right this way? If, if you had to tell me the top three things that I have to work on right this second, what, what would it be? And she, she sat back in the chair and kind of rubbed her chin a little bit. And she goes, well, you know, payday is on Friday. And uh, we have about 7000 in the bank. You, you might want to start with that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. I excused her from the office immediately. And she, she was happy as could be. And, uh, and I got to work on that. So. Well, that includes your pay, Brad. I mean, were you concerned about that yourself? I mean, what am I well, getting I into? I think I think that was a piece of it. I uh, I'm very proud to say, you know, I, one of the, one of the highlights of my career has has absolutely nothing to do with healthcare. I uh, had spent four years in the U.S. Marine Corps and loved every minute of it. If you've ever known anyone in the Marines, we that we thrive on adversity. We we love challenges, and uh, you know, for me, it was kind of a I know I can save this hospital. I knew it in my bones. I could do it. I knew all the things that were going wrong, at least initially. And I had a really good idea of how we could fix it. We could just buy some time. And so, yeah, I mean, the first thing we did, including myself, was I, I furloughed everybody's pay. You know, I said, we're all going to take a 20% furlough, and uh, including myself. And, uh, you know, instead of working five days a week, we're going to all work four days a week, so we save on payroll. And, or not, unless you're going to non-critical and the nursing and that kind of thing. Um, I uh, had to make some hard decisions. I, I, when we first started uh, back in 2013, we were 
uh, dramatically, uh, inappropriately overstaffed. And, and that's a hard thing to do in a small town. The hospital is kind of become a default jobs program. Truly, there, there is a right job for everyone, but, but not everyone was in the right job, and, and we were overstaffed. So when I came in, we had a staff of roughly 83 FTEs, uh, and I think within the first month, I had called that to about 45. The remaining 45 were furloughed 20%, and we made some significant and very hard decisions um, to, to, to survive. And so if we survive, then you know, we can look at rebuilding. But for the immediate, for the immediate future, these are the things we have to do. And frankly, the, the administration before I got there, the board before the board we have now, wasn't willing to make those, those decisions. Right. So that had to be some of the appeal in bringing you in. I mean, in a way, you're an outsider. You know, if I had one piece of advice for other hospitals going through that, I, I do believe um, smaller communities, there's, you, you can't help but have some level of, of inside baseball going on. Everybody's related to everybody. You know, I, I live in a town of 90 people. Uh, you know, we, the hospital is set in the county seat of 900 people. And you just know everybody. And it is very... Wait, wait, I'm sorry. So how many people are in your town that you live in? Uh, the town I live in is actually down the road from Arco. Okay. Uh, it's called Bull. It has 90 people. 90 people. And Arco has around 900 or so, according to the last U.S. Census. Right, according to the census, right. right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually gone down. I'm curious to see that number for the 2020 census. But, yeah, we, you know, every everyone, there's just so much uh, interpersonal relationships outside of the work environment. You, you help your neighbor bail hay at night. Your kids go to school together. You, you sit next to each other in the bleachers at church, the basketball game. And, you know, when you have to fire somebody or let them go or lay them off, it, it really is a painful Painful thing to do because you realize there's just no more opportunity for this person in this town, and it's either you're going to have to move or you're going to have to find something else. And, and frankly, there's just not a lot out there. Other than maybe, maybe you get a job with the city or county, maybe you go work at the Family Dollar, but they're not real you know, good jobs. They're not sustainable. So it, those are the things you know that, that make it tough. And I think that was a very wise decision. Something I always tell my colleagues at small hospitals is it's easier to bring someone in from the outside to, to initially make those changes because there is no attachment and uh, it's kind of like pulling the bandaid off really fast. It's, it's, it's going to hurt. <laughs> it might even leave a scar, but it has to be done. Right. And, uh, you know, and then, then, then if, you, if you make it, <laughs> you can integrate yourself in the community later. But bringing an outsider in to make those hard choices is, I think, a real key element. If you, if you want to be an agent of change, it generally has to be someone that comes in from the outside. In my own my own experience, you know, you never say you're never a prophet in your own town. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you, right. it can be the exact same thing someone from in town is telling you to do. But you know, I fish with this guy, and you know, whatever, and it, you know, he's an, he's an idiot sometimes, or whatever it might be. And, <laughs> You just can't. It has to be a message delivered from somebody else for whatever reason. But, uh, that, that's a that's kind of a truism that I found. Yeah. So so Brad, when you came in, was the community aware of how dire the straits were for the hospital? Oh yes. Yeah. In fact, okay. uh, I uh, 
prior to my arrival, uh, so 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 the, the board has to have monthly meetings, as does every hospital board. Right. It's a tax ministry for county. So go to another hospital, we have monthly board meetings. Prior to my arrival, uh, I was told uh, it was you know, 900 people. You had you know, 700 of them in the boardroom with pitchforks oh, wow. oh, and torches. Yeah. Okay. It, was, it was a pretty angry scene. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my sure. very first board meeting um, was, I think, let's let's look at the new guys. You had you had a, a full room. You know, <laughs> I was kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. Um, but you know, I think I, I I'm on a glass half full kind of guy. Since since then, you know, we'll get a handful of people, maybe five or six people, to show up to the monthly board meetings. And I, I tell everybody, you know, that that's goes to show you the level of trust we have now. It was just. This, the, the hospital is not an issue. You know, they know we right. are doing well. They know we're, they're, that's something they don't have to worry about. You know, now, now it's you know, what's going on at the school board, what's going on at the city, what's <laughs> the county doing. We all, I guess, we all take a turn in the barrel. But, uh, yeah, hospital, hospital's been out of that barrel for a few years now, so that's been nice for us. That is a nice feeling. How did the hospital get into this situation, in your opinion? Um, external um, things, internal things. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, a combination of both. I mean, there's a lot of externalities that take, uh, you know, that exert a lot of pressure on hospitals in general, but particularly, I think, are acutely felt in the rural environment. Uh, you know, we have these resources. We're in a reimbursement uh, environment now. Frankly, that at its core, you know, is based on the number of patient visits you get. You know, we are a volume-driven reimbursement system. In hospitals, emergency rooms, acute care, nursing homes, clinic visits, whatever it is, um, they're paid by the amount of patients we see. And there's a certain amount of, you know, because of regulatory uh, issues, there's a certain amount of fixed overhead that you're just always going to have, whether it's uh, ADA ramps or parking or lighting or staffing ratios, whatever it might be, um, new equipment, EMRs, there's always this fixed overhead, but there's not always a fixed volume. And as long as you're getting paid by the number of patients you see, if you live in a small town and you don't have a lot of patients, you're, you're continually on the eight ball. Um, and so the whole the whole volume payment system, frankly, I think, is systemically put rural hospitals behind the eight ball. You need everyone in town to get sick every month, all the time. And hopefully <laughs> they all have gold-plated insurance. Right. You know, and then you can keep your hospital. If you live in a small town, you, you, know, you just you just can't do it. In bigger facilities that have a lot of volume, that's not really so much an issue. You know, you're arguing about percentages of margin versus you know kind of payroll. The whole move now, I think, to value-based reimbursement is, I, frankly, for me, I, I think fabulous. Uh, healthcare is finally embracing a pay-for-performance model. You know, I, I told uh, our management staff at our last director's meeting, I said. We are, you know, we're at a, at, a, at a sea change right now. What's going on in the reimbursement environment with regards to healthcare? And the, the example I use is if you had a hundred patients come into our ER today, you know, and 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 every one of them had insurance, and somehow or another we had a bad outcome of every one of these patients. If everyone came into the ER hypothetically, let's say within 24 hours, every one of them. And you go, was that good medicine? 
Something was fundamentally wrong, systemically wrong, when we hurt all these patients. But at its core, we will get paid for 100 visits, regardless of the outcome. And you know, is that good medicine? Versus, if we see 10 patients today, and all of them have fabulous outcomes, and we provide top-level care, and follow-ups, and therapies, and are accurate in our diagnosis, and we get paid the same as we would for 100 patients, it was that valuable. Was it, did, did we did practice better medicine? So moving to value-based payments away from volume-based, I think is going to be a godsend for rural hospitals. Because I will tell you, uh, and maybe it's home cooking, I think, I think small hospitals have better quality. Uh, we have lower staffing ratios, and I really believe we take better care of our patients. Uh, because we know them. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're our fishing buddies. They're... The guy we sit next to at the basketball game, the football game, we, we have an incredibly deep and vested interest in the outcomes of all of our patients because we, we know them personally. And so I think we do take better care, and we do have great practitioners. The problem is we don't have a lot of patients. And when we remove the, the, the need for volume and just focus on quality outcomes, we're going to get paid on quality. If you're a cough hospital and you have a quality uh, a program, a quality way of delivering good health care, you should have nothing to worry about moving forward. And I think the real issue for Colorado hospitals moving forward is going to need to focus on how do we make ourselves the best hospital areas? How do we get the best outcomes? How do we make good patient satisfaction, good employment satisfaction, good patient outcomes, are we competitively priced? You know, those, that's going to be a good thing for us. I know a lot of my colleagues are terrified of that. <laughs> we're going to have risk-based adjusted payments. Good Lord, what, how is that going to work? What are we going to do? <laughs> and I think car hospitals do better medicine, frankly. You look at our uh, HCAP scores or our, any of our quality scores, and this is my favorite line when I talk to when I talk to big groups. I say, you know, is it true? You know, I, you know I, it, it is true that, uh, that you're going to get better. Or is, it, is, it, is it true? Oh, you want to say it. No, I said People think you're going to get better care at a bigger hospital. You know, people you, you think you're going to get better care at a tertiary medical center. And, and the answer is actually no. We, we do better care. The small hospitals do better care um, because we have no vested interest. But health healthcare is this industry that is so focused on high-tech, uh, new devices, new CTs, new cath labs. I mean, we have, we have the best toys in the world. And I think oftentimes we also forget that healthcare is probably the most intimate service we ever provide to another person. And we lose sight of the high touch uh, value that is, in, that is in healthcare. And I think you get that at a small hospital. Right. We practice good medicine. And you say, is, is it true you're going to get as good a care at a bigger hospital than a small hospital? And the answer is no. You're not. You're going to get better care. That, that's what I was trying to say. And I, I like that. I think the things that we do, we do really well. And if you do quality well, you shouldn't have to worry about you know, a value proposition of being risk-based adjusted payments. So I think when I talk to my colleagues about moving forward in this environment, whether it's you know, the ACA or creation of an accountable care organization, I think that's great, good, because we do good medicine. And if that's how we're going to get judged, that's great for us because as long as we're getting paid on volume, small hospitals are always going to suffer. 
we are always, we're always going to be men and Well, let's take a step back here, Brad. What? Well, first of all, a quick question: What the payer mix looks like in your community? I'd be interested to know. And then, yeah. when you arrived, how do you think people in the community viewed the hospital? Um, how did they feel about it as a place to seek care? Did they trust it? Were they going out of town? Uh, you know, I mean, they know they everybody knew the hospital was failing financially. So, what was the perception that you were coming into? Roughly speaking, you know, our payer mix is about. You know, we have about a third Medicare, Medicaid, a third uh, commercial pay, you know, your Blue Cross and your Medicare. And then you have about a third of just uh, self-paid, no-paid, bad debt, indigent. Um, so it's, it's a tough reimbursement environment. A lot of our folks, of course, in rural Idaho, there's not Medicare. a lot of Yeah, so there's not a lot of employer-based health plans either. So a lot of, we have a lot of ranchers and a lot of farmers, um, a lot of people like that. So... You know, it's, it's tough. A lot of them get on what they call the Idaho Health Exchange, so they might be able to buy into a plan. Um, but it is tough. And the paramix is a, is a tough thing. We don't really have a large employer in the area, other than the National Laboratory, um, but all of them, it's actually a little more closely located to a bigger city, Idaho Falls. And so we don't really see a whole lot of that either. With regard to, I guess, uh, what the, the perception of the hospital was, at least six years ago, you know, aside from having low volume to begin with, you know, the trust factor in the hospital is through the floor. Uh, people, even if they had insurance and lived in town, were opting to leave town for you know, a 90 mile drive somewhere else. Uh, there wasn't a lot of confidence in it. Um, and a lot of that, like I said, was, was you know, perpetuated by a lack of leadership at the time. The hospital itself um, was in some significant disrepair. Uh, you know, every time I remember the first, you know, I said I got there April 15th, so it was springtime. And I think probably within two or three days, we had a rainstorm. And, you know, my, my first week there, not really knowing what to expect, I see this handful of staff come running out in the hallway, and <laughs> everyone's got a bucket. Oh, man. And it was, it's, the, the roof leaks so bad. You know, you had a half a dozen buckets in one section of the hall and another half in another section of the hall. You know, so-and-so's office always flooded. And I mean, it was just, it was like that, that is the state of the actual facility. Um, you know, crumbling sidewalks, leaking roofs. We still had copper wiring in the hospital. And so it looked like it had not uh, had an update since it was built. And that, that went all the way down to even the medical group. You know, we really you know, 1953 surgical lights and no ultrasound, you know, four slice, you know, CT, you know, horse trailer out back. It yeah. was, it's tough. It was, it was tough. And so, you know, you know as, a, as a person that's, unless it's a really severe emergency, if you have the option, you're like, oh man, I don't, I don't really know if I want to stop there. Let's just, I can, I can hold it. I can make it. <laughs> so we, uh, the, and that had been years of neglect. Years of neglect, and so you know we had a pretty big mountain to climb, uh, gaining back our, our public's, um, you know, our, really our owners and taxpayers' confidence. And it really began with, you know, they could see us making the hard choices. They could say it was painful, but I think they all knew. I mean, they're very pragmatic people. These are, you know, ranchers and farmers. They, they get it. Um, it's, it's still hard, but they had to, they saw us making the tough choices. 
saw us uh, sacrificing a little bit here and there and, and reinvesting in ourselves. I, I think that's probably the other key thing when I think of small hospitals is a failure to invest in yourself. We, whenever we make a profit, we make, we've been profitable every year the last six years. Not by much. We've got enough to keep the lights on. We, uh, we always plow that back into our facility. So I'm sorry, you've had a profit every year since you started. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, one year it's like a dollar, but uh, you know, we're still in the black. <laughs> but that, that is because we take that margin and we reinvest. And we say, hey, we're, we're going to have to find $50,000 and we're going to redo the roof. We're going we're gonna to buy us something other than a four-slice CT. We're gonna, we're gonna build a surgery suite. I, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of one of the things I'm really proud of is uh, just next month we are opening a surgery suite, um, and that is something that they've wanted to have since you know 1997. The hospital itself paid all cash for that. You know, we, we built it for you know about 2.7 million dollars, and we have zero debt service on our books. We, so you have no you know, bond series. You're not no. Private well, equity we, or we banks to, backing anything up? I mean, no, we haven't taken out any loans or anything like that. Now we did, we did get a, a, a we did inherit a bond. Okay, we used some of those proceeds to pay off that bankruptcy. One of the very first things I did was get rid of the debt service. So Lost Rivers has one unique attribute to it, but it was, I guess, there's only one other hospital I got that shares it, and we have zero debt service on us. We do have a bond. But it's held by the state of Idaho as a as a geo bond held by the state. I think it's uh, something paid. We don't pay for it per se, um, but it's it's, it's a additional piece of the tax levy, and so it's it's paid off. So we don't carry any debt. So we wiped out the 3.7 million bankruptcy, bought a new EMR for roughly about a million plus. And then turned around and built this new surgical suite just off of proceeds over the last six years. That is extraordinary, Brad. Seven thousand dollars in cash on hand. You had how many millions in, in debt when you arrived again? Uh, about three point seven million. Three point seven million. And you didn't have to raise any other debt. You had, and now you've been profitable every year. It's Yeah, we realigned. We made some tough choices, but yeah, we I remember the first the first, uh, well, first six months, really, uh, just to get us going. One of the, one of the issues that we have, uh, I had never been in a situation where we were bankruptcy. And that was, that, was, that was a big learning experience for me. Uh, because as we go to the community banks, we go to every other place and I can save your hospital, but I need some working capital. Uh, it turns out if you have a bankruptcy, no, nobody is going to talk to you. Right. <laughs> so, I, uh, for the first six months, until we could get some, get ahead of steam, um, you know, we would get our, get our uh, settlement from you know, Medicaid, you know, at the end of the month, and, you know, make payroll and keep going and see, well, we got to pay the light bill, we got to do this and that and the other thing. But uh, we benefited mightily uh, from a few private farmers. Probably the toughest thing I ever did was go to, uh, go to these individual farmers, because the banks wouldn't give us any money. And uh, I threw myself on the mercy of the court. And, you know, these are long-time families in the Green Valley and said, you know, you, you want your kids to stay here? Do you want to retire here? You can't do it without a hospital. You know, I, you know I'm going to give you my word. We're going to pay you back. And so I would, about every two weeks, about every payroll period, I would go to these farmers and would say, I need, I'm going to be about 80000 short on payroll. And they'd write me a check. 
And then I go throw in the bank, we hit payroll, and the next week I would get my, my payment of our insurance companies or you know, Medicare, Medicaid. And then I'd go pay these farmers back the next day. And then the next week I'd say, okay, well, this week I'm only 40000 short. Can you loan me that? <laughs> so they were, they were very adamant. They were, they were very, you know, very, very generous. But they were adamant that the minute I get any money, they're the first ones to pay back. So I, I made a point of, you know, I was on a, I saw these farmers every week to either pay them or, or to get a payment. And uh, that's how we, that's how we really got along the first six months. I really just, you know, the community came together. Uh, but I'll tell you, I never had to go beg for money in my life. And I'll tell you, that, that is extraordinarily humble. <laughs> but, and, you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love rural health care. It is all just part of, uh, part of what you have to do. I said, being in the Marine Corps, you, you do what you got to do. We're going to win. No matter, no matter what we have to do, <laughs> that that was that was the path in front of us at that time. So, so that's what we did. It may have been humbling, but it's also awe-inspiring too. I mean, it's everything you think about, you know, in an ideal small community, people stepping up and doing that. I mean, it happened, and it still happens today. I think we lose to sight day, of that. It's, I remember telling the board that too. You know, when we finally started to started rolling there, making some money and, and doing well, it's the first time they had really made it. And, you know, and even to this day, about three million in reserve. And the board always gets a little giddy with that. And I said, you got to remember, my job is not to make you money. Our job is to provide health care. And as long as we don't lose money, our job is to, is to keep the doors open and you know, good health care. Don't, don't get starry-eyed just because we make a profit. Because perfectly honest, I'm, I'm probably going to use that profit to invest in the hospital you know, right. <laughs> to do something else. So, and then our board really, really gets it. They, they really do. I, the, the secret sauce of all of this, and I think it, for for all rural hospitals, is getting a board that uh, that, that understands that and, and and isn't gripped by fear. Because you're going to have to make some hard changes. I, you know, I, I saw the Meridian reports uh, a couple months ago. Between that and Becker's Health Review, you see, you know, 120 plus critical access hospitals closing in the last you know, five or six years. And I honestly believe it, it is as much mismanagement, and it's, it's equal parts of mismanagement and crippling fear. And so you're going to have to change something. And you see, oftentimes, I think the difference between success and failure is that board that isn't willing to do. What has to be done, and, and that, that's a hard spot. And I, our our big success has been having a board that uh, that was willing to back up those hard choices. I guess but I'm very grateful to them. They're really the ones that make it happen. Yeah, I'm sure that goes both ways. I want to talk a little bit more about the culture in the hospital too. So yeah. I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, you know, I've been in the medical device industry for a long time, and when I was a sales rep years ago, I used to go to a very small rural uh, hospital in North Carolina called Sand Hills, and sadly, it doesn't exist anymore. It it it, it fell and uh, went out of business. But I have very fond memories, Brad, of the people there. I mean, they were the warmest, most genuine people I've ever worked with, and they would do anything for you. I mean, 
it was a long drive actually from Raleigh to get down there. And more than a few times people would say, Hey, you can stay with me. You don't have to drive home tonight. I mean, just, you know, things that you'd never see anywhere else. We, we still do that. We're very much, uh, like I say, it's a, it's a cliche. I, I know it sounds like a cliche, but no, no, I mean, I saw it firsthand and, and, and yeah. it's, I mean, it's funny, I, you know, for years I would talk to this gastroenterologist every week and just say hi to him. And he wasn't a customer, nobody I was, you know, you know, trying to get business with, just say hi and talk to him. And for years I had no idea until somebody told me that the comedian Aziz Ansari, that was his dad, you know? And it, it's funny because now his dad, he's put him in some of the Netflix specials he does. And he's, <laughs> I think they made some joke where he was uh, trying to get an Emmy award for for his dad. But um, yeah. I used to talk to him all the time. And it was, but he was one of these linchpins at the hospital. I think he was the chief of staff for a while. And he was a very unassuming guy. He, he wasn't out bragging about his son. And it, it took somebody else to finally tell me, hey, you know, that's who he, who he is. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. You find a lot of that, a lot of small town heroes that you don't, you don't, you don't really realize. I, I tell you, I, I see it every day. You know, we we have that exact culture. It is the thing I'm probably, honestly, the most proud of. I, uh, if you go to our our Facebook page or our website, we have a fun group of people. And I think one of the things I even saw recently, one of our employees said, "If you're not having fun at work, you're in the wrong job." And in healthcare is tough. You know, I mean, it it's is. a hard business. And I, I see my staff and, you know, we really treat each other like a family. And uh, I think that's what got us through a lot of hard times. You know, when you suffer together, there's a bond that, that uh, inadvertently takes place and that's created. We, we, we went through the hard times together. And now on the other side of it, we're all, you know, we're, we're all pretty close because of that. And we, we know each other's kids and we, you know, celebrate each other's birthdays and weddings and we take care of each other and the divorces and everything else. And you're, you're right. I actually, I had my chief of staff live with me for oh, about two months because he was between between a rock and a hard place. And he's, I don't have any place to go. And my wife's gone and this and that. And so you just move in with me. You know, and usually that's not something that you see the administrator and the chief of staff hanging out together. But we, we are a very close, uh, closely knit staff. And I got to tell you, it, it really is a joy to, to go to work with these people. Not that healthcare is easy, but I got to tell you, it's a lot easier than like the people you're working with. Well, it was certainly tested when you came in. I mean, those are very deep cuts you had to make. No choice. Um, how long did it take to rebuild the staff? And did did you give first priority to people who had been laid off? Had many of them left? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I said, small towns. I mean, there's still. There's still some lingering, you know, there's one or two pockets of lingering, uh, lingering hurt, I suppose. But by and large, it's, it's all in the past now. And, um, yeah, I think to, to some extent, maybe initially, there may have been a little bit of survivor's guilt uh, and a little bit of like, who is this guy coming in from out of town, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there was the joke there for the first year. You, you couldn't, and this is their phrase, you couldn't swing a dead cat in this town not hit somebody brad had fired <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that that sense has gone away there's there's a real deep sense of pride and i think a recognition now in retrospect you know you had to you had to do what you had to do um just to just to survive and there's a there's a larger and more i think a deeper understanding and appreciation of what we did although it's always it's always difficult in the moment it was like spanking your kid 
You know, I always thought it was a joke when they said it was going to hurt hurt you more than them. It kind of it kind of does. It was that first year I hardly slept. I felt so bad about what you had to do, but also when you had a responsibility to to save that facility. That's the only way you were to do it. Well, speaking of kids, if you don't mind my asking, did you have a family that you moved with you, kids at that time? Uh... No, I actually. So, I, like I said, I was working at another facility when I uh, when I took the job over here in Arco. And both my kids were uh, established in their school. My wife was established at her job. Um, so I live up there during the week. And uh, we just recently had our 25th wedding anniversary. I said, uh, that was the secret to, to, to making it. She goes, I have a Monday morning we leave. And by Friday, I'm, I'm excited to see you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and both our boys are, they go to they go to Idaho State University now. I'm just really blessed. They they're both really good boys. And uh, you know, I think I think my wife and I living apart for five days a week has probably been the secret to our success. <laughs> but she, she's amazing and brilliant. And to be honest with you, has too much. <laughs> I'd probably just get in the way if I uh, lingered at home every night. Let's um. You know, let's talk about today, uh, where you are at the moment. So the hospital's in pretty, in a pretty good financial position. You've regained the trust and the support of the community. First of all, what services are offer, offered at the hospital right now? I mean, what, what uh, the service lines at surgery centers coming, but I assume there's no operative cases right now. But give us an idea what's Well, I, I what's always happening. laugh because we, <laughs> we get asked that on, on occasion. And I tell everybody this, well, you know, we're a 14-bed licensed hospital in the state of Idaho. Well, okay, what does that mean? I go, we're just like a real hospital, only smaller. <laughs> we we have emergency care, we have acute care, we have long-term swim bed and observations. We do a full array of imaging, uh, nuclear medicine, CT, X-ray, a huge laboratory. Um, and then, of course, we have the clinic side. And we have a clinic that's run. Every day in two two communities, Mackey, Idaho, and, and Arco, Idaho, um, and then of course we have all different therapies, you know, physical therapy, and podiatry, and OT, and, and speech speech therapy, and we're uh, we do just about a little bit of everything. One of the things I'm really proud of, um, and I think is the key to our success again, is not being fearful to be the first people in the water. So Lost Rivers, uh, just until three years ago, we became the very very first. Uh, level four trauma center in the state of Idaho. And, you know, that was big for us. You know, we have a designation as a trauma center. I mean, we're the very first ever, um, hey, this sounds, this sounds crazy, uh, but it's, it's true. It's, we became the very first ever telepharmacy in the state of Idaho five years ago. Uh, you know, in terms of why haven't, why did Idaho wait so long to be telepharmacy? I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. What's, um, I think they thought it was witchcraft, but uh, we, you know, the sign in Idaho is "Welcome to Idaho." Turn the clock back 20 years. It's kind of like that. Um, so we uh, we were the very first telepharmacy in the state. We were the very first completely cloud-based EMR in the state. Like I said, the very first. And tell us a bit briefly about that because that was pretty helpful for oh, you, right? I mean, yeah. So so one of the things that you know, of course, plagues small hospitals other than the volume um, is just finding good people. You know, it is incredibly difficult for us to find providers, but, you know, you scratch the surface, it's not just providers, it's administrators, it's housekeepers, it's cooks, it's 
uh, physical therapists, is IT people. The only thing that's more difficult for me to find other than a doctor is really an IT person. And so when we had a mandate uh, to have electronic medical record, now, this was several years back when you could still get qualified for meaningful use uh, and a test for meaningful use at a station phase one, which was you could get, uh, you know, I think it was 90% of your money back if you could attest to a certain level. And so we scrambled. Our very first year was to, you know, buy this EMR so that we could attest and get back, you know, $900,000 of million we spent. Um, and so we, that, that was a game changer. Because we knew we had to have it. But as you move to, again, this space of just payments, you're talking about quality measures uh, that we have to measure and have to be accountable for. Uh, the care has gone up, uh, certainly, and we're able to track that a lot better uh, moving forward. But EMR was a game changer for us. Uh, we were, one of the reasons we went with who we did at this Athena Health was at the time, uh, they really were the only cloud based EMR. Now, now it's now it's passe, and everybody offers a cloud-based solution for the EMR platform. But you know, you go back to 2013, 2014, they were the ones doing it. And I want to say we were wowed by the, you know, by the service and the technology and the price, and then they were all good. But really, the underlying reason was because it was entirely cloud-based. I didn't have to have a ton of servers, and I didn't have to have an IT person because I, I couldn't find an IT person. So a lot of what we did. Sure. Was you know, uh, by necessity, in retrospect, it looks innovative and you know, like you had a lot of foresight. <laughs> I think a lot of it was just necessity. Yeah, I mean, it's a scalable solution, so you grow with it, and um, it makes and it makes perfect sense to me. We talked about that actually a few episodes back. Um, is was there any other technologies or um, you know systems you put in place that that have made a big difference as well? Um, you know, like I said, I, I said mostly updating all the existing laboratory equipment, getting new, new analyzers in, getting the CT in from a four-slice in. That's, that's, that was big for us. <laughs> I don't even know what they make. I think, I think they sold the four-slice to, to a veterinary medicine school. You know, and it's pretty <laughs> tough. But, you know, we, we did, you know, one of the things that was fun for us, you know, again, it sounds a little behind the eight ball, but for us it was big, was Arco has uh, the hospital. Is the only location in Butte County that has fiber to it. Um, and really? We couldn't get a telecommunications company to put fiber all the way out in the desert there for us. And it's just not cost effective. Um, so we had to, we've been very good at lobbying, uh, which is a little bit of my background before healthcare. And so we went to the state and we went to the delegation and we realized that uh, through the Homeland Security Act, hospitals are designated as critical infrastructure. And that they had tele, local telecommunications companies had to offer um, what they call universal service charge designation to critical infrastructure. They basically, we were able to compel uh, telecoms to bring fiber out to us. Now they don't have to give it to the entire county or to any house, but they do have to give it to the hospital. And so, getting that fiber opened the door to get you know better. Clarity on tax images and sending leads out and getting the EMR and um, you know, all this other cloud-based uh, cloud-based technology that we have now. The telepharmacy these could not operate if we were using the, the old DSL T1 lines. Uh, so, yeah, we've been very successful. We're, we're, we weren't able to, you know, 
I guess, make enough profit to make change. We were, we've been pretty successful at getting our legislature to help us out, either at the state or federal level. And how much of your time do you think is spent on that? I mean, that's probably a, a significant component of what you're doing. Yeah, right? I, I tell, so I'm also a, a, in, on occasion, I could teach at Idaho State University Healthcare Administration in Weber State. And um, I tell healthcare administration students, like, you know, a lot of your time needs to be spent looking at, I would say, government studies. Uh, you know, healthcare is dominated by regulation that is laid down by CMS or HRSA or a variety of the counties, cities, state, you name it. Everything affects hospitals. Um, and everyone's got a regulation that you have to adhere to. And I said, you need to be very good at that. Um, and you need to be good at, you know, uh, getting your message across to all the officials. Like in a past life, uh, I'm actually recovering a congressional staffer, um, looking at <laughs> healthcare. And that, that was my life. And so for me, it was an easy thing to bring to the table. Um, and so it's actually part of the job I enjoy the most. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a critical component, particularly for young administrators, uh, to be able to, to develop that skill set. Because as an administrator, that's going to dominate a lot of what you do, whether it's reimbursement or safety regulations or payer regulations, or you name it. Everything it, on down to getting a fiber in your house bill. Yeah, one of our past guests just recently, um, Jonathan Gruber, who's a MIT economist, and is considered really one of the architects of the ACA. He uh, he mentioned in our conversation that I think he's quoting a senator that he knew, and he said the senator said if he would if he died and was reincarnated, he'd come back as a as a congressional staffer because that's where all the power is. You know, you know who's elected in Washington D.C. because they all have gray hair. You know, you know who's running Washington D.C. because they're all in their twenties running around. <laughs> Those are all the senators. <laughs> Well, in the time we have left here, let's talk about what you're working on now. Um, you know, I'm curious about the Surgery Center. It also looks like you have a, a partnership with Bingham Memorial Hospital. Yes, very, very. Uh, tell us what that looks like and, and what you're trying to look at in the next five five years or so. Well, I think that kind of touches on the third the third lesson I think I would impart is critical access hospitals at large need to be very open to collaborating with their big, their big partners, their, their, big, their big brothers. Without the risk of being taken over or being bought, uh, you know, you, you don't want to lose become a urgent care of the helipad. And what we have found, um, the, the collaborations that we share with our partners and the bigger hospitals has been, I, I would say, really true partnerships. You know, the latest one, of course, is with our partners at Bing Memorial, um, whereby, you know, they're going to provide, I still don't have surgeons. I'll have a beautiful brand new state-of-the-art surgery center opening next month. Uh, but we're going to have some of Idaho's best surgeons working there, and that's that's helpful for them. That's helpful for us uh, in a real good collaboration. So, what does that look like? A general surgeon coming in a couple days a month, or well, so yeah, it's an innovative model. You know, like I said, by necessity, <laughs> we um, we actually put out an RFP and had several bites, but uh, really, the Bingham model was the only one really able to deliver. And what, what our model was uh, just just like Big Town, so we have more than just general surgery. We said, well, we have gastroenterology cases. Well, we have general surgery cases. You've got a lot of knees and hips <laughs> that you might expect in a ranching, you know, guys riding around or just getting beat up all the time. Um, you know, and those kinds of things. And so we said our model is where we say, well, um, hypothetically, let's go Mondays, every Monday, 
the gastroenterology guy shows up. And maybe on Tuesdays, the general surgery guy shows up. On Wednesdays, maybe it's just podiatry. So we don't have to change the room or change the set or change personnel. It's just that day. It's all outpatient surgery, although all the big stuff, of course, is still going out. But the low-hanging fruit stuff that we are losing right now in terms of outpatient vibration, we can keep. And that really is not too onerous for our partners because they, they, they have plenty of surgeons in one day a week when you have our general surgeon going out to partner. You know, every Tuesday he goes out. Or every Wednesday our gastro guy goes out. And so it gives us a level of continuity and service delivery. And we're getting some, some you know, great surgeons. One of them are our ortho guy and we trained at Yale. I know you're a Harvard guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll forgive. That's fine. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, as you uh, say, you have, yeah, as you say, you have to do what you have to do. So <laughs> have to do. Well, you can take a yoga. That's what we have to do. So, um, so these surgeons coming in, are they working a circuit? Are they doing other hospitals in the area? Is this a model um, for them? We're, we're, this is this is where they're where their only hospital circuit partner. Oh, I see. Uh, so, okay. so Bingham has its own surgical department, but it's significantly larger than us. I mean, they have, they have excess capacity. That, that's probably, I think, the key to success for these rural hospitals is finding partners that have excess capacity and making it work. Um, as I always tell them, so that you know, pigs get fed and hogs get slaughtered. You know, we, we just want a little bit of surgery. We don't need 20 surgeons every day. <laughs> I said, I need general surgery once a week. Yeah, we've we got plenty of general surgeons. We'll send one out there every um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good thing for us. Utilizing excess capacity uh, is huge. It's good for your partner. It's good for the hospital. I'm looking at the rural hospital. Uh, we see that a lot. You know, and I think that's a key to success in the rural market is, I, I remember saying earlier, we're just like a real hospital and we're smaller. <laughs> we, we have all the same regulations as tertiary medical centers. You know, we're DMV certified. We're uh, by the way, it was the other first we did. Mark Allsworth uh, was the first critical access hospital to get a DMV certification. We have to do all the things big hospitals do. We're just doing with a lot less resources. But in so saying, we have to have a 24-hour ER. We have to have 24-hour imaging in the lab. We have to have all the services. And finding ways to leverage, you know, can we can we be doing something better with our time? with his excess capacity. How do we utilize that? So I'll give you an example. One of the, one of the things that we did at the hospital was um, we just, we, a couple of years ago, we painted our, we had a new coat of paint on the patient hallway. And we said, well, you want to get professional painters in here. It's going to cost this and that and the other. And our nurses, our nurses volunteered. They go, you know what? At two in the morning, when there's nobody here, we're sitting here. You know, waiting for the ERs to show up or whatever. And my nurses got out of gowns and started painting. And, uh, you know, using your, using that time, I said, we're already here. What can we, what can we do? Uh, a constant pursuit of efficiency and success. And that, that's really what we have. Finding ways to leverage that capacity, finding ways to make collaborations work um, with outside partners. Those are, those are huge things. Those are the keys to success for them. All right. So, a couple weeks ago when we were talking on the phone, Brad, I think you were on your way to Colorado because you had oh, yeah. another CEO who was asking for some help from you. And he said you get these calls yeah. not infrequently. Um, no. One, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, 
how much you've done, you know, your efforts to help other, uh, you know, colleagues out there. But do you think that there's enough from your success here and your model that's transferable to other communities? Because I, I'm going to say it right now, this absolutely had a lot to do with you. Uh, there's, you can't take that away, but it also had to do with the community. There's certain aspects that, I don't know, maybe unique to ARCO, maybe not, um, that were advantageous. But what about this model that you know could be transferred, and, and what, what advice do you give when you're going out to these visits? Well, to, to, to be honest, in a nutshell, like I said, there's no real secret. I think it's, do, do you have the guts to pull the trigger? You know, there's certain, there's certainly, you know, a handful of things you can do to put your feet on the right path. And then you're right. I mean, I get calls in that same day we spoke earlier. I got another call from another hospital in California and kind of, kind of going on the same conversation. What can we do? Where can we go? And I'm always happy to help. You know, Lost Rivers is a product of being able to, you know, we're, we're here because we stood on the shoulders of giants, you know, people that came before us. And uh, we borrowed frequently from, from other hospitals. Um, and so happy to pass it along. It's just what I find oftentimes, the, the difference between the ones that make it and the ones that don't, or do they have the courage to, to do it? You know, and that usually is rooted, the CEO can only do so much, and they have to answer to the board. And if you have a board that's worried about losing their job or worried about pissing off you know, their buddy, or my wife's going to lose her job if we do this. And, you know, you got to find some real political courage to make the hard choices. And I think inherently a lot of executives know what they have to do. It's just, you know, are you going to, do you have a guts to do it? And do you, are you going to have the support to do it? And, and that's tough. I have more than one occasion. And I, I, I had my uh, resume in my desk ready to go because I go, this doesn't work. <laughs> it is what it is. But, uh, you know, you go down knowing that you were right. But, I, uh, you know, my board's been supportive. But it, it all boils down to having the courage to do the right thing because those, there's not an easy choice. And I, like I said, when I first got there, I barely knew anybody. And, and still, it feel awful. You know, come home at night and, you know, just, just feel terrible about what had to be done. But for the good of the world, you know, it's, uh, if you're, it's a conversation we wouldn't have today. And, you know, looking back, we're already, we're back to over, you know, 83, 85 employees now, but they're all, you know, they're all in critical positions. We're all generating revenue. We're all getting good satisfaction. We're, we're functioning uh, like a hospital now. Um, but uh, that Thermidorian effect that takes place after, you know, when, when a new guy gets there to make those tough choices, that's that's hard to live through. That's a tough. That's a tough 18 months. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, well, Brad, I, I think that's probably a good place to to cut cut us off here. I hate to do it, but uh, you know we're just past the hour here. Maybe we can talk you into doing a longer visit with us a year from now and kind of do a little update and see where things yeah. are. Oh, I'd love to. Oh, always happy to talk about the hospital. You bet. Yeah, we're, I think we're we'll do that. Be a, we got a good story to tell, and I, and I think it is transferable. Um, I, you know, like I said, I, I love working with other hospitals because I, I know they can make it. it. It breaks my heart when I see you know, when I read something about another one goes down, another one's closing, another one's closing, it's like, how, how can it happen? How, how do they really let it go? But, like I said, it's, it's a tough business. It is, it is, but uh, 
you know, I feel a lot better after talking with you. It's, I just think this is extraordinary. I mean, congratulations for everything you've done. And, um, you know, we hope the best for you. I, I, th- I think this is going to be I really appreciate that. Well, like I said, feel free. If you, if you ever in Idaho, you know, like I said, <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll, give you, I'll show you the best fishing in the world. So We might have to, Keith. You're, uh, Brad, you're the second yeah, guest yeah. from Idaho in two weeks, actually. Kind of random, That's but right. uh, you are. So road, you can spend a little time here. And, yeah, and see Craters of the Moon Park, too. So. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Idaho's pretty small. Hell, we probably, probably know each other if he's in healthcare. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, uh, Brad Huerta, uh, thank you again for coming on. Um, everybody, this is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Wherever, whenever you're listening to us, take care, and we'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com. <laughs>